Well, where we left things last week was that Jesus, you know, we've been studying the crucifixion now for the last several weeks, uh, but Jesus has now died. And so we're going to pick up with, uh, with verse 31 and read through 42. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross uh, on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to, to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear at once. There came out blood and water. He who saw it uh, has borne witness. This is John speaking about himself. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the jews now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one yet had been laid so because of the jewish day of preparation since the tomb was close at hand they laid jesus there It's Friday, as far as the calendar of things unfolding at this point. Friday was the preparation day. I think sometimes when people read these passages and they, they see that the preparation day is mentioned a few times here, that they jump to the conclusion it's preparation day for the Passover, but that just does not fit into the timetable. What you're talking about here was preparation for the next day, which was Saturday, which was the Sabbath. And we can all understand that, uh, that if you entered into a day where there was really no work whatsoever that took place and that sort of thing, that you would have to spend time preparing for it the day beforehand. The Jewish leadership has pressed Pilate and the other Romans to be done with all of this stuff with Jesus before the Sabbath day came upon them. One of the reasons is they've rushed all these things through as quickly as they have. Their thinking at this point is that now they can get back to business as usual. Jesus is done away with, he's dead on the cross, etc., etc., etc. It was common practice for the Romans uh, after many hours of excruciating pain and physical torment for 
people that were on the cross to break their legs, in a sense to give them a mercy killing. Because what people died from that were crucified was asphyxiation. I mean, Jesus' feet were nailed to the cross for the purpose of enabling him now to push up because he's hanging down by his arms, making it almost impossible to breathe. He has to push up with his feet every time he takes a breath. And so eventually people would die from asphyxiation because they got to the point they just could no longer push up and breathe. I mean, we've all gasped for air at certain times. I would imagine for most of us, we got out and ran around the parking lot one time. We would be gasping for air after that was all said and done. So we know what it's like for your body to starve for oxygen. And it was not uncommon, therefore, because people could endure this for a significant length of time. It was a common practice that after some time on the cross, the Romans would come basically with a sledgehammer and they would break the legs of the person so they could no longer push up. And therefore, they would die very quickly after that. For these Jewish leaders, they wanted desperately for Jesus to die for certain before the Sabbath day. So they went to Pilate and asked if the legs of Jesus could be broken, and he gave permission for that to take place. In other words, he ordered that to take place. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, and therefore they didn't break his legs. We talked a little bit about the swoon theory a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week, and that is just the idea that some people have come up with to explain away the, the crucifixion, and that is that Jesus, even though he appeared to be dead on the cross, he really wasn't dead, that he was somehow revived, and you know, he, he, he didn't really come back to life. He was alive all through his uh, his trials and tribulations. But one of the th things that you're going to find argued very effectively in the Gospels is that Jesus really was dead. That anyone was there knew it. There was no one that doubted that Jesus actually died on the cross. Little did they know, by not breaking his legs, they were fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. They unknowingly fulfilled the Old Testament law that none of the bones of the Passover sacrifice were to be broken. Exodus 12, verse 46. In Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. In other words, if the legs of Jesus had actually been broken, it would have rendered him unacceptable as the Passover sacrifice. So, I mean, so you can see all of this is not being played out according to the, the plan and the will of the Jews or of Pilate, that everything that is taking place here is taking place just as God the Father has determined 
that it would. But just to make double darn sure, one of the soldiers takes a spear and he thrusts it up. Remember, Jesus is hanging on the cross. So when he thrusts his spear, it's going up. And I would imagine that the target of the spearhead was his heart. Now, one of the things that happens when people die is almost immediately the blood begins to separate out because what keeps it mixed up and keeps the red blood cells and white blood cells and all that stuff mixed up kind of homogeneously is the pumping action of your heart. But when you take blood and you let it sit and settle for a while, it begins to separate out. The heavier stuff in the bottom and the more watery stuff on the top. So it should not surprise anyone that, 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 that when Jesus was pierced with his spear, that a combination of blood and water, it's just more evidence that Jesus was actually dead. And also, unwittingly, it was the fulfillment of another Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. He was what? He was pierced for our iniquities. John says this. 1935, he who saw it has borne witness. In other words, John is saying, I am an eyewitness to all of these things. He saw this. He heard what was said. Sometimes it's harder for us to believe things unless we see them or we hear them ourselves. I mean, there really is an added advantage of that. When we see something, it would be hard for us to deny the reality of it, right? When we hear something, it would be hard for us to deny the reality of it. But the fact of the matter is no one here and no one for the last 2,000 years actually witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. None of us. It's an area where we are absolutely dependent upon the witnesses who were there to tell us what actually happened. Every one of these apostles will suffer greatly. In their life ahead, because of their association with Jesus. Because they believed what they knew to be true. And they refused to deny it. John was only one of them.
John was an eyewitness to all of these things. It would be just like if Butch Hilliard had been there and he saw with his own eyes and he heard with his own words, own ears. Everything that took place. He obviously anticipates that people will question what he saw. Now, now you could understand that, right? I mean, this really remarkable, phenomenal stuff that he's revealing to us. Have you never questioned this stuff? I did for a long time. I mean, how do we know this stuff is real? I mean, there's all kinds of stories and myths and things like that that come from ancient history. How do we know that this is the one that is true out of all of those that were false? Well, we're about to study Nicodemus a little bit. And just remember this. That this is not the first encounter that, that Nicodemus has had with Jesus. That he was a Pharisee. And he went to Jesus and asking him questions. And to sum it up, what Jesus told him was this. Is you must be born again. And he makes it obvious that it is not a birth that you bring upon yourself. But a birth that God must do. He must breathe life into that which is dead. For anyone to take and receive these things as they're intended to be taken and received. Have you ever questioned the legitimacy of the death and crucifixion of Christ? I did. I mean, we have to understand something. He is testifying. He is he's, he's witnessing some, some virtually unbelievable stuff. I mean, how would you respond if someone came up to you and, and began to tell you about things like resurrection? There was a time in my life when I thought all of you were crazy. Or maybe just plain gullible and stupid. Because logic demands, I mean human logic, apart from anything from God, demands that Jesus died. That means Jesus is dead. End of story. Just remember that these men were eyewitnesses, and women too. And that maybe, and there were times it seems that they tried to run away from their responsibility to witness to other people about what they had seen, because let's face it, do we think for a minute that everywhere that the, the Apostle John went and the Apostle Peter went and then later on the Apostle Paul went, et cetera, et cetera, that they were received with open arms and et cetera? No, very often they were persecuted because of the message that they brought forth. They died horrible deaths, most of them. Why? Because he refused to deny the death, 
crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They paid a great penalty for it. So you would think that out of one of them, <laughs> that one of them would have just given up the ghost and said, we've been lying all along, this is all just a hoax. But that is not at all what we see history, apart from Scripture, history itself attests to. These men really believed what they taught. And the life they lived reflected how great their belief was. John assures you and I in what he writes that these things really happened. They're not some fantasy. They're not some made-up story. John thought it so important that you and I know about it that he actually wrote it all down. He authored this gospel that we're reading and we're studying through. One of the surprising things is this, is we, we've talked just recently, the last few weeks, about how John was very near the cross because he had this conversation with Jesus. But strangely, once Jesus died, John disappears. I mean, you wonder here. Jesus is dead. And let me just tell you this, if it was not for the fact that someone came and claimed the body of Jesus and given permission to have the body of Jesus from Pilate, because this person was executed under Roman law, Jesus' body would have been taken and thrown into a common grave for criminals. But there's a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Who knew Jesus. Who disagreed with the council. Who went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And not only that, he's joined by a guy named Nicodemus. Both of whom were members of the council. Both of them were members of the council that judged and condemned Jesus. Now, we know something of Nicodemus already. He had a personal encounter with Christ all the way back in John chapter 3. And that's where Jesus had enlightened him to a very important Fact, And it's one that I think Christians today, a lot of Christians at least misunderstand it or they're totally unaware of it. And from that conversation, 
the principal thing that Joseph of Arimathea walked away, or that Nicodemus walked away with, was the teaching of Jesus that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again from above. You know, very often as we read these portions of the Gospels, we don't see that there are a lot of people standing with Jesus, but we need to understand that there were people who were standing with Jesus. There was an angry mob led by a bunch of angry religious officials who wanted Jesus, desperately wanted Jesus dead and done with. But there were those who were true. Maybe just a few scattered here, there, and yonder who really knew Jesus, who served Jesus. But you got to hand it to Joseph of Arimathea and to Nicodemus because they took upon themselves their responsibility. They couldn't care for Jesus in life. They couldn't rescue him from the cross but they could do this little service for him once he died. And that is to take his body and treat it with love and kindness and dignity, which it would have had none of otherwise. We need to understand that both of these men were putting themselves at risk because both of them were a member of the council. You think this is going to make them popular with their buddies? But they could not do nothing. Can you imagine? Here they were. They were in all of these, uh, these court hearings, and etc. They had access to all of it. They listened to it. They disagreed with all of it. When the vote came, they voted against it. They are taking themselves at risk. Why were, not the other, why were not the apostles there? Why was not John there? It was because John at this point was afraid and because Peter was afraid and because all the others were afraid. They let their fears overcome them. Fortunately, that was short-lived. And here you have Joseph and Nicodemus stepping out from the rest of the crowd. As we have said that some of the other Gospels at points during this uh, death and resurrection narrative of Christ. They, they give us other details that the other gospel writers may or may not give us.
But we understand that the things that are taking place now are taking place on Friday, and you know, Saturday's the next day, and that's the Sabbath. It's, uh, and this is why we see it, it, it mentioned here a few times a day of preparation. It's not preparation for the Passover. The Passover is coming on. It's preparation for the Sabbath day that's coming. Now, you can imagine that if you lived a life where every, every week, one day a week, you were not allowed to hardly do anything at all that would be construed as work in any sense of the word, that it would take a good bit of time for you to prepare for it the day before. And that wasn't just true for the Pharisees and for the scribes and all those other people, but also for the common folk. Everything that you ate on Saturday had to be prepared on Friday, that sort of thing. Joseph and Nicodemus here are rushed to prepare the body of Jesus because they can't do it the next day. It has to be done on Friday. Because they couldn't do things like that on a Sabbath day according to the rabbinic law. We do know this, that they were not entirely alone in a sense. And that is that there were women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they were watching from a distance and saw where they laid the body of Jesus. So they were there at a distance. Not actually involved in the preparation of the body now now we're told here that nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices and things and aloe can you imagine all of that's what they what took to prepare one body but we understand the pro that the reason for that is to decrease the stench Everyone in this room has smelled the, the stench of death at one time or another. Now, it may have been just driving down the road and you pass by where some dog got hit two or three days ago or a deer or something like that, and you smell that odor, and it's one of the most sickening odors that you would ever smell in your whole lifetime. Our body, at the moment we die, begins to decay. Up to that point, there have been bacteria even in our stomach, in our digestive system, and etc. That our body is held at bay. But when we die, we have no protection any longer, and the bacteria and the fungus begin to cause decomposition. And it stinks. According to, to Matthew, on Saturday, which is the next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now, they're not supposed to do something like that. This is the Sabbath day. But this is how important it is to them that they're going to put aside, they're going to lay aside every law and rule they've got to make sure they're done with this fellow named Jesus entirely, completely, absolutely. They gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the apostle said, 
While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell people he has risen from the dead. That would have been Saturday. The Jewish Sabbath. And I would imagine any common person that did something like this on a Sabbath day would have been in deep weeds. But these men, nonetheless, they, they do something that they would have condemned someone else for doing on a Sabbath day. They just want to make sure that, uh, you know, that somebody doesn't steal the body and somehow fake resurrection or, you know, whatever, you know, claim that Jesus was resurrected even though his body's no longer around. I would imagine Pilate is kind of sick and tired of all of this, but nonetheless, in order to pacify these Jewish leaders, he grants their request. And he gives them permission to do it themselves. I want you to notice this. Very often when you see pictures of, you know, the crucifixion of Christ and, and, and actually the, the, the tomb of Christ, and there are always soldiers there around, and there are always Roman soldiers but let me just tell you, from Scripture, it sounds more likely that these were Jewish soldiers, not Roman soldiers, who were stationed at the tomb. I don't want to make a big deal out of that. It's just something that came on me this week. That this is what people see, and this is what you see in all the pictures. There's Romans. The only thing Pilate did, he didn't send his soldiers to do it. He gave them permission to do it themselves. And they had no power and authority over Roman soldiers. It could very well be that it was a combination of Romans and Jewish temple guards. But who knows? So now there is an official guard at the tomb. There's an official Roman seal on the tomb. Anyone that broke that seal could have suffered something as heinous as death as a result of it. Jesus is dead. And Jesus is in the tomb. And the tomb is sealed. And guarded. And sometimes when we read scripture, it's very easy for us to take some of the lessons and apply them to ourselves. In other words, how can I take what we've been talking about this morning and apply it to me? In other words, how do we get beyond this just being a story to this being a story of which I am a part of? So 
So what would be some lessons that you and I might learn from what we've talked about this morning? One of those is this, is we can't help but wonder (laughs) about Peter and John and all those other guys. Just remember that, that, that Peter has actually defended Jesus in more of a public setting in the beginning of the trials and tribulations of Christ. But now, where's Peter? John was there at the foot of the cross, or near the foot of the cross, talking with Jesus just hours before this. Where's John? Where are the others? They were hiding in fear. Have you ever felt anything like that in your life? You hear people sometimes talk about closet Christians. They're sometimes fair-weather Christians. In other words, they're there in the good times, but when the bad times are upon things, then they're nowhere to be found. How many people in this great land this morning would make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but they will not go anywhere close to a church? People don't like to suffer. Oh, I guess there are some crazy people do that like to suffer. But, but you and I, if we knew that someone really loved to suffer, we would think they were crazy, right? We all agree on that. There are some people who seem to really want to be martyrs. But we know that's not most people. Most people don't get any joy and pleasure out of suffering for anything. But let me just tell you this this morning. We cannot just be fair-weather friends to Jesus. We just can't be. Because let me tell you something. There really is no fair-weather friend of Jesus either you are or you are not very often we picture it as this kind of mushy ground in between those who want nothing to do with him and those who really love him and there's a lot of people in that mushy area that you know whenever it's conducive to them whenever it works to their advantage maybe to claim association with Jesus they do that but when it's to their disadvantage maybe of doing that with the people they're hanging around with or whatever then they in essence deny any association with Jesus do you think that might possibly describe at least a few people Do you think it might describe 
even more people? Or do you think it might even describe a lot of people? You know, as secularized as the United States is becoming, you could still walk down the sidewalk today and stop people that you do not know from Adam and ask them what their religious affiliation is, and they would tell you that they are Christians. But if you had a deeper conversation with them, you would begin to understand right pretty soon that they don't even understand what being a Christian actually is. In, in, in this land, for a lot of time, it was almost as though people equated being a, uh, an American to also being a Christian. Let me just tell you this. One of the reasons it took so long for me to come to Christ was because of Christians. People that I knew and I could see their hypocrisy from 10 miles away. People who claimed one thing and lived something entirely different, at least from my perspective. Now, one of the things I came to understand once I did come to faith, and that is that none of us is perfect, that we all have our weak moments. We all have those times when we're tempted, and sometimes we give in to temptation. Now, don't we? Can I have an amen? amen? We know what that's like. We know that no one lives a perfect life for Christ in this world. But we also know this, that when you truly do know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that your life is distinctly different than it would be without it. You have a love for God. You have a love for Christ. You have a love for His church. You have a love for His people. As imperfect as we are. You know, I've talked to a lot of people that have visited the church over the years, and one of the things I hear very often is the people there, they just seem to really love each other. Really? It doesn't come across as fake. It comes across as genuine. Let me tell you, I don't think you can give a church a greater compliment. Because not, it's not just a church that is professing Christ, it is a church that is living Christ. Heaven forbid that any of us would ever be described as a closet Christian or a fair weather Christian. Sometimes it's really easy to live life as a Christian in the world. Other times it's not. And mark my words, if things continue the way that they're going right now, there's going to come a time when many of us will have an opportunity for to stand with Jesus and at the same time to maybe be fearful for doing it. For most of us, that time hasn't come yet, but it very well could in our lifetime. 
So the question is, what will we do when we're given those opportunities? Will we be faithful? Or not? And let me just say this. It's not a matter of maybe sometimes I will fall short, maybe sometimes I will fail. It's a matter of fact that sometimes we will in fact do that. Because as much as we have of Jesus, as much as the Holy Spirit indwells us in whatever, we still have sin within us. As long as there's a vestige of sin in us, we're never going to do what's right all the time. Ever. But hallelujah. Hallelujah. Even this isn't the end of the story. The story goes on. The story is the center of our life. The story is the center of our being. I'm going to give you some advice this morning. This is the best advice I think I can give to anyone, and I'm talking to myself, and that is this. The best thing we can all do for ourselves is to die to ourselves and live for him and in him. More and more and more and more. Don't become stagnated. Don't be comfortable where you are. Well, in some sense, maybe, but in another sense, don't be comfortable where you are. There's a sense in which we can be too comfortable, and when we become too comfortable, then we're not willing to step out of that comfort zone. Don't let that happen. Don't be a fair weather friend to Jesus. That's not his plan for you. Or his intention for you. 